Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. Welcome back to episode 117 of the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast. My name is Nick Hill. I'm a real estate investor, mortgage agent at Land Bank Advisors, and lucky enough to be the co-host of this podcast with my buddy, Daniel Foch. Thanks a lot for having me, Nick. Daniel Foch here, real estate broker, researcher, analyst, a whole bunch of things in the real estate space. Um, today, we're going to be talking about Evergrande and its potential impact on the Canadian real estate space. Yeah, I mean, you know, going back all the way to episode 11, this is episode 117. So it was 111 episodes ago that we talked about trouble in the world's largest asset class. We covered this. And Dan, you were talking about Evergrande and some of the funny business that was happening even before we did that episode. So finally, it happened. Evergrande filed for bankruptcy. And that's China's Evergrande Group, one of this, the country's second largest property developer. Uh, just this past Thursday, fired for Chapter 11 in New York. Chapter 15, actually, which allows U.S. courts to in, interact with um, foreign entities. I thought which I got makes that sense. chapter wrong. Yeah. I, I knew it. Not a big chapter guy. No. And I believe, actually, they were once the largest real estate company in the world in 2018. So this you know, this has a lot of significance to it. This almost feels like that that Lehman Brothers moment. Yeah. I mean, it, it's also funny and, and almost ironic because we recently did an episode on the biggest real estate companies in the world as well. And I feel like the biggest companies in the world have been very newsworthy lately because we have another episode, our next episode coming up, which talks about Warren Buffett and why he's interacting with those largest companies. But he's a big deal himself. While we're speaking about things that are the largest. Please don't make a, a bad dad joke here. No, I would never. China's property sector accounts for more than half of global new home sales and home building. And it is the largest asset class in the world. And we mentioned that in in episode 11 when we talked about the significance of this and kind of foreshadowed that we felt this would be one of the, the catalysts for the next cyclical event in not just Canadian real estate, but in, you know, in, in the world. So the next thing to watch is how regional governments, many of which rely on real estate revenue, start managing their debt because similar to how it works in Canada, they're, they're not getting land transfer tax. They're not getting property tax when the entire real estate ecosystem is crumbling in that country. Yeah, let's expand that and, and compound it a little bit. So according to economists, the world's largest asset class is actually residential property with an estimated value of two hundred trillion dollars homes are collectively worth about three times as much as all publicly traded shares wild yeah and um so, so basically you have the the largest asset class in the world or sorry the largest market within the largest asset class in the world um, and the largest company and the largest two companies, because we're going to talk about it. it's not just ever it's not just Evergrande. There's a company bigger than them and um, called Country Garden, and they are not doing well at all either. And so the, the question is, what what could happen next? How bad could this get? And do we have to worry in Canada, a country where we have a lot of exposure? We know through foreign investment, foreign direct investment, but also through migrant capital in the Canadian real estate market. So. 
Let's go back to the article. We'll set some context first. Yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, even if you go back and listen to that other episode, Dan, that we did on money laundering and and how it has affected the Vancouver market and actually how the the prominence of money laundering in Canadian real estate is 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 just crazy. So, you know, why would a Chinese company, Chinese construction company have any bearing on the Canadian market? Well, we'll get to that because through all these little back channels, we are actually very, very connected, unfortunately. For sure. And uh, and I, I think we're about to find out how connected and what the impact of that connectedness means for us. So since the sector's debt crisis unfolded in mid-2021, companies accounting for 40% of Chinese home sales have defaulted, most of them private property developers. So almost half of the companies that are developing real estate in the in the country have defaulted on a loan in some way or another. That sounds chill. Yeah. <laughs> It has led to many unfinished homes and you've seen a lot of content coming out of, and there was a lot of, there was even people protesting. Uh, there was a mortgage strike in China mm-hmm. at a point where people were fi- or refusing to pay their mortgages and rightfully so because the properties that they were getting were not um, mortgage worthy. Like, you yeah. know, they, they, you couldn't live in them. They were basically empty shells. So, and, and a lot of unpaid suppliers and creditors who are not only financial institutions, but also ordinary folks who bought wealth management products, you know, invested in projects, et cetera. So there's a lot of subsequent dominoes now that we're thinking that could fall. Uh, many offshore bonds now trade at low, double, or even si- single digit cents on the dollar, and their share values have shrunk 90%. There's very little liquidity left in both the equity and debt markets as investors and creditors avoid the sector. Yeah. So let's talk about how this time is is different, right? Because Dan, I mean, there's been so much talk about recession lately, and I think it's human nature to be like, okay, well, what happened last time, right? But every time is not like last time. And although we can learn lessons, sometimes those lessons are different, right? And we keep on learning. So let's talk about how this time is different. With home sales already very weak, the debt crisis could delay the prospect of a recovery of both the property market and the broader Chinese economy in which real estate is a core pillar. The S&P Global Ratings said on Wednesday it could adjust its forecast for property sales to a descending staircase from an L-shaped recovery if Country Garden officially defaults. Reminds me of um, Stephen Polo's uh, cursive V-shaped recovery. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we talk about K-shaped recoveries. That's not good. An L-shaped recovery. I mean, Just talk about taking the L. Talk about taking, like, really taking the L on this one or a descending staircase. I mean, that's just a series of L's, I guess. Yeah. So they go on to talk about um, marketing of properties and how this could impact sentiment. And and this is something that you know interests me in Canada as you start to see like. Uh, developers, you know, some developers have projects fail, and then the question becomes like, will they ever? Would that developer ever be viable again once they've had that that reputational damage? Right, so, right. it says home buyers could become even more wary of private developer brands, and home prices in many areas co- could come under greater pressure if Country Garden resorted to fire sales to raise cash. So, if Country Garden, and th- this first article here is about Country Garden, Country Garden's the largest developer in China, and they basically owe or they have a, a bond payment on a $1.4 billion bond coming up that they've basically stated they're not going to be able to to pay. <laughs> and so at this point, the whole thing, and it has been since we started covering it in you know, 2020, 2021, it's always just been a ticking time bomb. Mm-hmm. And, and as a result of a lot of volatility in the Chinese real estate market, during periods of volatility, 2015, 2016, 2017, when affordability was running out of control, 
you know, this is an asset class that that the country the, and the people of China really value. And that's where we started seeing a lot of flight to quality into Canadian real estate. And we're going to talk a lot about that. We're going to compare and contrast the two different concepts and potential outcomes. But the question is, if Country Garden is bigger than Evergrande, why is Evergrande or why was Evergrande the one that everyone was focusing on? Yeah. And you know, before we get into the possibilities as to why, it's even funny because Country Garden and I, you know, I haven't heard almost anything about them, let alone Evergrande, where you still haven't heard a lot about them. You know, I expected when this news was breaking, I expected Twitter to be all over it. I expected, um, you know, social media to be covering it. And it's remained very, very hush-hush. And that might be because the market has priced in the news already, right? Priced in the news already. Pricing in is that's a concept that we're going to go into later but let's talk about how this could impact canadian real estate dan yeah so i mean if we look at if a market is priced in news it basically means that the information or event has already been anticipated and factored into right. the current prices of financial assets uh, so investors have adjusted their expectations and valuations and you and i were just saying you know we've been talking about this since 2020 this has been a ticking time bomb for a long period of time and the market knows that and so nobody's surprised that evergrande finally filed for bankruptcy and so you didn't see a ne- huge negative impact in the in the market immediately and and that's from my perspective to to be expected the the part that becomes a greater concern is what you were mentioning you know we haven't seen the media covering this yet mm-hmm. at a certain point these stories get big enough and bad enough that you get your Lehman Brothers moment and all of a sudden it becomes pop culture, common knowledge that this is happening. People start buying hats and, and yeah. wearing memorabilia. Yeah. And then, <laughs> and then, um, yeah, I guess that's a shout out to the, we, yeah. we do have Evergrande hats on realestatemerch.ca now, by the way. Um, <laughs> the, but you know, the, um, the consumer sentiment can happen once people start, you start getting enough of these fearful news things. And we're going to cover the greed and fear index at the end of this episode. Let's just get back to the article here. Yeah. So back to the article, China's Evergrande Group, one of the, once the country's second largest property developer filed for bankruptcy in New York on Thursday. So they borrowed heavily, obviously, and uh, and they defaulted on their debt in 2021. So it's been two years. Then this sparked sparked a, a massive property crisis in China's economy, which continues to feel the effects today. Now, Evergrande filed for Chapter 15 bankruptcy protection, which allows a U.S. bankruptcy court to step in when an insolvency case involves another country, China in this case. Chapter 15 bankruptcy is intended to help promote cooperation between U.S. courts their debtors and other countries' courts involved in a cross-border bankruptcy proceedings. So let's examine the impact of their default. So China's real estate sector was long seen as a vital growth engine to the economy. Um, sounds familiar. We've we've seen a lot of that here. But their 2021 default really was felt through China's property markets, and it it left a lot of homeowners kind of holding the bag, and it also damaged the broader financial system in the country through kind of that, like the ripple effect and the domino effect. So their default became, or came after the federal government in Beijing began cracking down on excessive leverage and borrowing by developers in an attempt to rein in soaring house prices. Um, and so this was almost led by the government. And I think that, you know, it is interesting because a lot of people want to examine this as like, oh, if China's economy falls... I think China uses cl- classical economics and like they want lower house prices, really. And their banking system is very similar to Canada's. I think they have seven banks. They're all state-owned. And so, and ba- so they basically have a, a state-owned oligopoly 
So they're not like, I'm not really necessarily worried that their country is going to fall as a result of this, but I think that there will be like, it's going to, going to cause a slump and that that's going to pull on the rest of the economy in the world. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it, it's been a hell of a year. I mean, we've seen the likes of, of Credit Suisse go through turmoil as well, right? And But again, this goes back to the question of too big to fail, which I know we'll we'll get into in another episode in uh, where we talk about Canadian real estate being too big to fail. But you know, since Evergrande's collapse, several other major developers in China, including Kasia Vantasia, great Disney movie, um, and Shimao Group have uh, have also defaulted on their debt. So we are seeing a trend already of these major developers not being able to pay their debts. Uh, quite alarming. Most recently, another Chinese real estate giant, Country Garden, who we've been mentioning already, warned that it would consider adopting various debt management measures. Dan, that's just a really nice way of saying, hey, we can't... Uh, we can't pay this, so time to get creative. That fuels more speculation that the company may be preparing to restructure its debt as it struggles to raise cash. The industry's problems have been amplified by an overall economic slowdown in the country and around the world. Okay, so let's dive into what does this all mean? So there are a few ways of looking at this. So, you know, we talked about the concept of being priced in versus, you know, a ripple effect or a domino effect. So has the market looked at this as if it's been priced in or is this a domino or catalyst or a wake up call to the market, to the broader market? Will this be an isolated event or does it have a lot of contagion? Typically when things are you know, when an industry is using a lot of credit, those creditors have exposure. But China's unique because they have this like, I call it like a capital diaspora. Diaspora is like the group of people that have left the country that are living elsewhere. A lot of them take money with them. That if if they're seeing their domestic holdings decrease in value, then maybe they have to to sell to cover positions um, in in China. And, um, and so that leaves us with the final question is, you know, will we see a flight to quality similar to what we saw in 2015 to 2017 in Canadian real estate where, you know, a lot of Chinese capital was leaving the country as a result of running away from volatility, running away from fear, um, but also going into an asset class that they felt was higher quality or lower risk in ca- Canadian real estate. Or on the inverse, would we see what I described as, you know, what would be a kind of a negative wealth effect. And we're going to go through very thoroughly what all of those concepts mean. Yeah. Let's let's start with um, the difference between priced in versus maybe wake up call or catalyst because those sound like, you know, a staircase of either getting worse or, or getting better, Dan. So let's start there being priced in. Sure. So when something's priced in by the market, it means that the market participants have already factored or taken into account the particular event. So using the bankruptcy of China Evergrande Group as an example, here's how the concept of a priced in concept could apply to Ever- the Evergrande situ- situation. So the initial reaction when news of Evergrande's financial troubles first started to emerge, investors might have reacted by selling off their bonds and stocks and uh, or Evergrande's bonds and stocks. This would have led to a decline in their share price and, and bond prices as markets market participants became concerned about the company's ability to repay their debt. Then the market does sort of an assessment. As more information became available, discussions about the potential outcomes of Evergrande's situation unfolded. Investors and analysts would have assessed the risks and impacts and more thoroughly. So this is kind of after they've already had that scare moment. They would have considered factors such as their debt levels, assets, potential for government intervention, and broader economic implications. And then the market kind of prices in 
that that whole thing. So overtime markets gained a clear understanding of what was going on. They it it all becomes factored into the prices of Evergrande's bonds and stocks and and the broader economy given that this is a systemically significant company. Um, if the market believed the bankruptcy of sig- significant financial restructuring was likely, this expectation would be reflected in lower prices of Evergrande's assets. Uh, the re- then you would see a resolution if, if Evergrande were to eventually de- declare bankruptcy or undergo go, uh, major financial restructuring, which is happening today, the actual event itself might not lead to as significant of a market reaction as the earlier stages of uncertainty. This is because the market has already priced in the expectation of such an outcome and investors would have adjusted their positions and strategies accordingly. In summary, being priced in means the market participants have already taken the event or news into account. It's almost like, you know, when somebody's in like palliative care, right? And you you grieve that that process a long time before they actually pass away. Yeah, it's, it's anticipation. It's uh it's proactive versus versus reactive. Right. And uh, yeah, and so the concept helps to explain why markets might not always exhibit a strong reaction to a major event if that event happens because it was already anticipated and factored into the asset prices. The antithesis of this or the opposite of it would be that Evergrande's default and bankruptcy was kind of the first domino falling down in in this asset class and economy. Yeah, so let's talk about domino. Dominoes, not to be confused with the game or or the great pizza, but the domino effect, um, or the market catalyst, or even a financial contagion event, uh, refers to the triggering event that sets off a chain reaction of interconnected events or disruptions within financial markets of the broader economy. That often leads to a cascade of consequences where the effects of the initial event spread rapidly through various sectors and markets. So let's use China's Evergrande and as an example here of the domino effect. Okay, so we start with the initial trigger. Now, the initial trigger is the financial distress faced by China's Evergrande. The company has a significant amount of debt. It's unable to make monthly payments on time. Um, its debtors are now coming to call and uh, it could eventually lead to a default event. The second step in the staircase here is market sentiment and concerns. News starts to come out about uh, Evergrande's financial problems, and that can lead to a more negative market sentiment. If you've been listening to this podcast for quite some time, you know we've covered consumer sentiment a whole bunch of times. You know how important consumer sentiment is. Then we'll talk about the contagion effect. The concerns about Evergrande's potential default could spread to other sectors of the market, right? So if that's a construction, maybe the mortgage industry or the skilled trades industry could be affected. Uh, This could lead to also a sell-off in related stocks and bonds and commodities. Then there is the risk aversion and sell-offs as the contagion effect spreads. Market participation may become even more risk-adverse to start to liquidate assets perceived as risky Financial system stability concerns is the next step along the way. A widespread sell-off and market turmoil could raise concerns about the stability of the financial system. Exposure to Evergrande, banks' exposure, banks and other financial institutions' exposure to Evergrande could now be very risky. And then the final step, government and regulatory response. So in response to the escalating situation, 
government authorities and regulators may have to intervene to stabilize the markets, prevent the further contagion. We've seen this a number of times. We saw it with Credit Suisse and the government. We've seen it with the United States and their bailouts. And in this example, the financial difficulties of China's Evergrande serve as the initial trigger or the first domino. The market catalyst is the negative sentiment, concerns around surrounding Evergrande's potential default. The financial contagion event is the spread of those concerns. It's important to note that while this example does illustrate a potential scenario, actual outcomes can obviously be very, very different here. So, Dan, what are your thoughts on this, on these two potential outcomes here? I think that the other pieces that the they don't need to be mutually exclusive. Like, I think we did see... We've seen pricing in, you know, while you were speaking there, I had the chart up behind your head of the, with the guy's face on it, but it shows, it it shows how Evergrande's price dropped from $31 uh, in November of 2017. And again, this is important to note because like during that period of time, there's a lot of volatility in the Canadian real estate market, especially foreign foreign direct investment in Vancouver in 2016 and Toronto in 2017. We're going to cover this towards the end, um, both of which were kind of capped by foreign investment taxes in each of those markets. Um, but that pr- the price of their, their stock dropped from 31 bucks in 2017 to $2.27 in, in 2021. Um, and so I think, you know, there, there are, the question becomes, what are the two potential outcomes? And I don't think these are um, mutually exclusive either, but will we see a flight to quality, which would be bullish for Canadian real estate, right? People are saying, oh God, this is crumbling. We got to get our money out and we got to put it into a better asset. And we already know that that China did, or Chinese capital did that a lot in that period of 2015 to 2017, so much so that the government felt that they had to to cap mm-hmm. foreign investment into real estate. Or would the alternative be that we, we could see a negative wealth effect? Um, so a negative wealth effect here refers to a psychological and uh, behavioral phenomenon where a decrease in the value of assets such as real estate leads to reduced consumer spending and economic activity. So using the potential collapse of China's real estate market as an example, suppose there was a significant collapse in China's real estate market resulting from factors such as excessive debt, oversupply of properties, tightening government regulations, or changes in investor sentiment. This collapse leads to a sharp decline in property values and has ripple effects across their economy. If their investors who have heavily invested in real estate properties in China experience a decline in their perceived wealth as property values plummet, they would feel less financially secure or prosperous. This would impact consumer spending, feeling less wealthy. They might be more cautious about their spending. They may cut back on discretionary spending, major purchases, save more money, and then it can cascade kind of through the into the broader economy. This would have impact on investment abroad, which is, you know, the investors in China who have diversified their portfolios by investing in foreign real estate markets, such as Canadian real estate especially, may also feel a negative wealth effect. And as their wealth erodes in China, they may face increased financial pressures, such as the need to cover losses or meet financial obligations resulting from the collapse of their domestic real estate investments. And so what would you do in that situation? You would likely liquidate. And so you, if you see a liquidation of Canadian real estate to cover losses or alleviate financial stress caused by the collapse of the Chinese real estate market, some of these investors would would sell properties in Canada. And this is where you would get a bit of a race to the exit. If if there's a sense of urgency and they're, they, they become less dependent on, on price. And so they, they really just want to get the money out. They don't care as much, you know, how much they get out, especially mm-hmm. given a lot of that buying happened in that 20, 
2015 to 2017 period. So they have a lot of equity padding. They have a lot of room. And I mean, desperate times, desperate measures. For sure. Fire sale. For sure. And so how would this impact the Canadian real estate market? And, And I would say that, you know, you don't see a ton of exposure in foreign investment outside of major cores in mm-hmm. Canada. Um, you know, obviously the the two biggest being Toronto and Vancouver, both of which at well, Ontario has a um a province wide foreign direct invest or foreign investment um tax and we now have a federal foreign investment ban. But there's also migrant capital. It's not just foreign investment. A lot of people conflate foreign investment versus migrant capital. Um one of the biggest ways, well the biggest way that capital comes into our country in Canada is by people becoming Canadian citizens. So anyway, if people liquidate, we start to see prices reduce for them to cover their positions faster. It could have this liquidation could have a kind of a domino effect, like Nick mentioned, and and trigger a chain react chain reaction. I'm not saying whether or not I think that this is going to happen. I'm just kind of trying to explain the full scope of what that outcome would look like by comparison to what Nick's going to mention, which is the flight to quality. So that you can kind of, I would say the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. And I think we just want to give our audience the ability to understand the entire scope of a range of potential outcomes so that they can get a grasp for and, and come up with their own opinion of what they think would, would be the, the potential outcome. So in the scenario, uh, the collapse of China's real estate market leads to a negative wealth effect. Um, they sell assets, including Canadian real estate, to address financial challenges stemming from losses in their domestic investments. For some context on the exposure here, which we've been mentioning a couple of times throughout the episode, Chinese homebuyers accounted for nearly one-third of Vancouver's real estate market during 2015. Crazy. Crazy stat. Yeah. So they were spending approximately $9.6 billion of the $29 billion of total real estate sales, according to a new study from the National Bank of Canada. <laughs> this is interesting. Eh? The National Bank financial an- analyst, Peter Routledge, you may recognize that name from the current head of OSFI, who compiled the data, said that Chinese homebuyers occupied 33% of the total housing volume in Vancouver's real estate market and 14% of purchases in Toronto, or about $6.7 billion of the $47 billion in deals. In the United States, Chinese investments for real estate sky- properties skyrocketed from just $4.1 billion in t- 2009 to almost $29 billion in 2015. So again, this is the, a, a lot of wealth was being created in China. A lot of uh, property values were, were going up and they were looking and they liked the real estate asset. They like hard assets. So Routledge, who called the study a back of an envelope attempt, calculated the results using two sets of data, the uh, U.S. National Association of Realtors, or NAR, and a Financial Times survey of 77 affluent and high net worth individuals from China. This is funny being from 20, 2015 from my perspective, um, and it says the, the analysis from National Bank uh, comes after the federal government's budget announcement Tuesday that it would spend five hundred thousand dollars to track foreign home buyers. Oh, that sounds it's like, like a, less than a less than a house. Great use of capital right there. Yeah. So obviously there are some, you know, pretty potentially scary outcomes. And keep in mind these are just potential outcomes. Again, as Dan said, we're just trying to run through some scenarios. These are not opinions, not predictions, but that's the bear case. So now let's talk about the bull case, which would be a flight. To quality, Dan. Thanks for letting me read the the bull case. Well, here. you did have the bear case in the last I know. <laughs> two things that we mentioned, so <laughs> I tried to balance it out. I appreciate that. So, flight to quality. Now, that is a financial concept that describes a phenomenon where investors move their capital from riskier or more volatile assets to safer, more stable assets during times of uncertainty or market turmoil. 
The goal is to perceive capital and seek refuge in assets that are perceived to have a lower risk and higher quality. Using the collapse of China's real estate market here as an example, let's dive in. Suppose the collapse of China's real estate market creates significant economic uncertainty and financial instability. Chinese investors who have invested heavily in the domestic real estate market and are concerned about the preservation of their wealth may seek safer investment options abroad. In this case, they may consider Canada and Canadian real estate as a flight to quality strategy. And here's how that would work. The first step would be concerns about domestic real estate. We're witnessing that happen right now, right? There are many of their major home builders and many of the major real estate firms on the verge of collapse, filing for bankruptcy. So what happens in response to that, in response to the uncertainty that they're seeing, those investors are likely going to start seeking out stability. So some Chinese investors might decide to allocate a portion of their capital to foreign assets that are perceived more stable and less susceptible to the risks they're experiencing right now. Cue Canadian real estate. Uh, you know, even though it might not seem so safe sometimes compared to a much more volatile and on the verge of collapse real estate market, uh, Canadian real estate looks like a safe haven, particularly in major cities such as Vancouver and Toronto, which are likely more insulated in certain certain asset classes. That would lead to pr purchasing property. Chinese investors, as part of their new flight to quality strategy, may start buying up Canadian real estate properties. And how would that impact the Canadian real estate market? Well, the flight to quality by Chinese real estate investors could lead to an increased demand for Canadian real estate, just what we need, especially in markets that are already popular among foreign buyers. Again, Vancouver and Toronto, this increased demand could put upward pressure on property prices in those markets. The last thing is how would that change or affect market dynamics? The influx of foreign investment might influence market dynamics, potentially leading to debates about affordability, housing supply, and the impact on local communities. Policymakers may respond by implementing measures to manage foreign investment, which we've, again, seen already. In this example, the collapse of China's real estate market triggers a flight to quality among these Chinese investors, prompting them to seek safety and stability by investing in Canadian real estate. This phenomenon can highlight the interconnectedness of global markets and the influence of economic events in one region on investment decisions and asset prices in another. So the flight to quality is a more likely scenario if you believe the market has priced in Evergrande. And that's why we mentioned pricing in versus kind of the domino or catalyst effects. Then maybe we've seen or been seeing capital come into Canadian real estate as a result of these things. And, and they don't have to be mutually exclusive, as I mentioned. You know, they, There's another article from 2016 that follows up the article I was mentioning in 2015 that talks about why Chinese investors like Canadian real estate so much. While it tells us of the downside exposure, it also shows the potential upside that could happen in, in this flight to quality scenario. Yet the amphetamine rush of Chinese cash has been felt far beyond the disappearing pictures of the Fraser Valley, especially in the last couple of years. 10% of new condominiums being built in central Toronto are now going to foreign buyers, according to a survey released by CMHC. Veterans of the city's rough and tumble real estate market believe the vast majority are mainland Chinese. 
on Huawei.com, an online listing service where Chinese buyers look for international real estate. Inquiries about specific properties in Ontario rose 143% in 2015, with a total value of those homes hitting $11.2 billion. Quebec saw its numbers more than triple, while Alberta's rose 70%. Meanwhile, Chinese developers have made buys in locations that have left analysts scratching their heads, including Nova Scotia's remote eastern shore and an abandoned mining town in the BC interior. The stated reasons for such purchases don't entirely compute. Neither seems the likely site as owners and local officials suggest for a full-service, self-contained vacation community that they plan to develop. Um, But the broader incentives are easy to see. Next to China's own volatile real estate markets, property almost anywhere in the Western world can seem an island of financial sanity, says Matthew Moore, president of Juwai's North American operations. The Year-on-year property increase in Shenzhen, one of China's tier one cities, was close to 60% year over year. So you think about growth in Canadian real estate and we think 10%, 20% is our, is nuts. Well, that's what we saw in 2022 before the, the, the collapse. That's what we saw in 2017 before the collapse. Um, they saw 60% year-on-year growth. And so this is why <laughs> it shows you that, I mean, yeah, and that, and that capital is just fearless in the face of volatility. Like, mm-hmm. you know, when you see people getting the FOMO and continuing to rush into bidding wars when things are up in double digits year on year. Now it shows you why they 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 have no fear. And and this is about wealth preservation, uh, he adds. So he he says that's a big part of the, the sense of urgency. Even the most privileged Chinese mainlanders have for decades been shut out of buying property. It sounds familiar, right? Which Moore describes as their favorite asset class of the Chinese dating back to its pre-revolution days. This is on top of profound worries many Chinese have have about uh, their country's overbearing political system, the lack of transparent rule of law and rampant corruption. Now, all of this has landed Canada in an economic paradox and increasingly Toronto fear about that Chinese money has helped inflate a property balloon of Hindenburg proportions driving home values out of reach for even well-off young professionals while raising the risk of a crash at the first sign of adverse conditions. What would adverse conditions be? Maybe rising rates? Yet the self-same conditions are adding handsomely to the net worth of millions of homeowners and supporting a constellation of housing-related industries from real estate sales to interior design, construction, mortgages, etc., etc., so the, this is where you, you know, in order to make the decision of, of what you feel the impact is going to be, we have to ask ourselves, like, does this news and, and, you know, you and I discussed this, like, I think at a certain point it becomes like pricing in what happened on Wall Street, right? Right. On, yeah. And the question is, where does it impact? When does it get to Main Street? When do you switch from that, that greed that we've been seeing in the market, which we're still seeing, you know, the S&P uh, approaching all time highs again, right? Total bull run equities. Uh, the only place that I saw this happen in, in the market was ever the Evergrande announcement happened. And then you saw Bitcoin drop, like there was a flash crash in Bitcoin. <laughs> but you know, the next day, the S&P, and I, I, I thought it, you, it would open low, but then it recovered, right? Um, and, and a lot of it's because you have so much retail capital, I think being like, oh, if, if we're in a recession, then rates are going to come back down. And, and uh, anyway, so it seems like Country Garden seemed to be the priced in or is, is priced in by all of the um, Evergrande news. And I think when it comes becomes this kind of trending pop culture thing or mainstream news, then it impact, starts to impact sentiment on Main Street, not just in the market 
per se, in quotes. And the fear and greed index measured by, I think it's CNN, went from extreme greed one month ago to fear today. Um, so, so it, you know, you can see it happening in the market, but it's just when does it materialize? Yeah, I let's talk about this index. So what is the CNN Business Fear and Greed Index? The Fear and Greed Index is a way to gauge stock market movements and whether stocks are fairly priced. The theory is basic on the, oh, sorry, the theory is based on the logic that excessive fear tends to drive down share prices and too much greed tends to have the opposite effect. So how is fear and greed calculated? The Fear and Greed Index is a compilation of seven different indicators that measure some aspect of a stock or market behavior. They are market momentum, stock price strength, stock price breadth, put and call options, junk bond demand, market volatility, and safe haven demand. The index tracks how these individual indicators deviate from their averages compared to how much they actually they normally diverge. The index gives each indicator equal weighing in calculating a score from 0 to 100 with 100 representing maximum greediness and 0 signaling maximum fear. Dan where are we on the fear and greed scale? Yeah, so I think we're at a 45 right now, which is just on the low end of neutral, kind of creeping into to fear here. Um, a little scary out there. I think so, and, and rightfully like so. The opening scenes of a horror movie here, kind of where like it's anticipation, not scared yet, but like I, I know I'm going to get scared. Yeah, I mean, it does seem, and another good way to measure this is looking at the, the VIX, the volatility index, um, to see you know if the market is starting to get worried about the um, behavior here. Um, so, and I just wanted to add a couple of comments here from my, um, from my Twitter when I posted this, this news, because um, I found them really fascinating. So one of these says, my thought is China can easily su- survive a banking crisis. The CPC prefers low home prices. Their foreign debt is being lent out at like 13 to 14%. Their banks are state owned. They use classical economics. To them, Land is not productive. Mm. Um, and we've talked about productive versus non-productive assets. We could probably do something a little bit more on it, but they prefer the capitalism of goods and services. So um, this person's perspective is that this is much worse for those outside of China. Um, then somebody responded saying, capitalism of goods and services is for all intents and purposes, the production of housing and the stuff we put in them. And this is like my, this is how I feel about Canada's economy. So if you have an economy that is so massive, built on the same kind of thing, pure consumption, basically, you know, durable goods like your appliances, um, you know, furniture, all of this stuff, right? And so this is another comment, by the way. So it says they way overbuilt in secondary tertiary centers. Uh, Too much household wealth is tethered to misprice residential real estate in parts of China. Mm. Sounds familiar, right? Very. Yeah. Except we are not overbuilding in secondary and tertiary markets. We we, we should be. We yeah. could be. But yeah. uh, I mean, that is the big difference here. It's like yeah. we do have a, we do have way too much household wealth in Canada tied up in the primary residence. Mm-hmm. But we, it, it's like there's no alternative, and there's no there's no way we can build too much supply to. So, so yeah, yeah. So I think there's a bit of a floor there. I would I would agree. There's some more safety. Um, I guess we should wrap up here. This is a really good episode. Yeah. I, well, I know you've been waiting probably you know a few years for this episode. And and full disclosure, I guess we'll we'll plug the hats again because uh, realestatemerch.ca Everground hats. Dan, you we had the hats order. We had the hats set up and and done within like 
literally, I don't know, an hour yeah. of the news breaking. I even got some comments when I posted them on Instagram being like, wow, the boys don't waste any time. Yeah. I was like, yeah, you know, we're we're on top of it. Um, yeah, thanks so much for listening, everybody. Hope you got a ton of value out of this episode. I know not maybe one of our more traditional episodes, but again, a lot of principles to be taken away from this, right? Understanding the fear and greed index, looking at these major market trends and how these big players have made mistakes um, that can go all, and those mistakes can be made by by mom and pop investors as well. I think, yeah, the last piece that we want to add there is um, make sure you go sign up for a meetup. So you, uh, so realestatemerch.ca, realestatemeetups.ca. Uh, we have nine groups, so nine cities across Canada right now, 800, more. 811 members. Um, we want more groups. We want more members. Um, we have meetups happening. So the next one's... Um, October, or sorry, um, September 12th and then October 10th and then November 14th. Those are the dates for the next meetups. They're happening in each of those cities. So make sure you check out re, uh, realestatemeetups.ca. And then uh, we, you know, we teased this on the last episode. We do have a course coming. Uh, it's going to be first come, first serve. We want to do a really small group, keep it intimate so that everybody can kind of learn from one another, share stories, share anecdotes, share homework, cheat on tests. Um, <laughs> because you know we want we want to build the course so that when we do release it as a pre-recorded thing, um, it's really good. And so we need kind of almost beta testers or a small cohort to help us do that. So it's going to be available at a much cheaper rate for the, for, for the beginning and it'll be one-to-one. So send us an email if you want to be added to that list. Um, cause I don't know if the domain is up yet, but, but it'll also be linked in the show notes. It will be ready in the show notes for this episode. Yeah. We're super excited about this course guy. I've been working on it for, uh, for a long time. So go check that out, check out the merch and the meetups and, uh, thanks so much for listening. We'll see you soon. The Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast is for entertainment purposes only, and it is not financial advice. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Center and a partner in the G&H Mortgage Group. License number 10317, agent license M21004037. Daniel Foch is a real estate broker licensed with Rare Real Estate, a member of the Canadian Real Estate Association, the Toronto Real Estate Board, and the Ontario Real Estate Association.